Welcome to the OIS Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Bill Freeman, Distinguished Professor of Ophthalmology, Vitreoretinal Surgeon, and Esteemed Academic Researcher at UC San Diego. Our host, Dr. Feras Rehal, studied with Dr. Freeman, and together they take a look back at developing drug delivery methods that are now the standard of care and ahead to developments that could change the game once again. Take it away, Feras. Welcome, everyone, back to the OIS Retina podcast. This is, again, Feras Rahal, member of Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles and Excite Ventures out of New York. Um, we always have the most interesting retina people and industry people to talk to today. I'm delighted. I, I have one of my first and great mentors, uh, the person who taught me during my fellowship, which was uh, sadly a long, long time ago, 1994 through 96, Dr. Bill Freeman, who's currently uh, still the Distinguished Professor and Vice Chairman of Ophthalmology at UC San Diego and the Director of the Jacobs Retina Center and the Retina Division at UC San Diego. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for taking the time to come chat with us. It's a pleasure for us. Thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about your background, then I want you to get into it. I'm just going to list a couple of things I want to hear about it. Um, I, I knew this before, but in review, I saw that you had done the two fellowships, both the Doheny Fellowship at USC in vitreoretinal surgery and the uveitis Fellowship at the Proctor Foundation, very well known, especially at that time. I know you brought both of those skill sets to your practice because I, I witnessed your practice for two years on a daily basis. Was that always the plan? Did you have the intention during residency, which I know you did in New York, to uh, take on both uh, fellowships in uveitis and surgery? Join Dr. Firas Rehal at the upcoming OIS Retina Innovation Summit on July 13th in New York City, where you will see and meet with leading startup companies, top industry executives, and clinical thought leaders addressing unmet retina needs through novel therapies. OIS Podcast listeners receive a discount using code OISPODCAST. Register today at OIS.net. Yeah, you know, I was old, when I went into ophthalmology, I was worried that I wouldn't still be a doctor. And I remember this very clearly, you know, I didn't want to do which is better one or two and schedule the patient for cataract. I wanted to feel like a real doctor. So uveitis intrigued me because you actually get into the world of medicine, especially now when these patients are treated with immunomodulatory drugs, you know, but even intravitreal steroids and all sorts of things were very interesting. And coming to the diagnosis, figuring out if they're B27 positive, if they have Bechet's disease, whatever it is, was interesting. So UC San Francisco, San Francisco was the Mecca at the time. And uh, Dick O'Connor was the director of the Proctor Foundation. And, and he was an astonishing guy. He was one of the greats. I'm about to go into the exam room. And he tells me, so Bill, what's the cause of that patient's uveitis? And I said, well, Professor O'Connor, I haven't looked at the patient yet. He said, it's obvious. You don't need to look. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, it's obvious. Just tell me. I had no idea what he's talking about. He says, this girl has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis because he could look. Her chin was hypoplastic. And children with these, you know, uveitis, with, with these um, 
Uh, arthritis is that they get a depressed chin a little bit and they have a specific faces. So this really brought me into the world of medicine and I was delighted there. Uh, I, I pursued my windsurfing in San Francisco. As you know, in the summer, it gets really windy in the, in the bay. Uh, and I had my first encounters with Chrissy Field where the water is about 52 degrees. And when you fall in with a wetsuit, you get out really quickly because you <laughs> feel the, the life's blood being drained from you. But anyway, then when I went to Doheny, and at that time, Doheny and USC were the same, that was really a mecca for vitroretinal surgery. And Steve Ryan was the chairman and uh, silicone oil was being developed there and elsewhere for the use of complicated retinal detachments. But I remember that I was always the guy who also knew uveitis. So even though I didn't know retina, the retina guys would bring me over, hey, Bill, there's these multiple lesions. What kind of uveitis is it? Is it choroiditis? So it was a really great combination and still is. Uh, a lot of the really great medical retina people, people like, you know, Larry Yanuzzi, they know uveitis very well. And they, they can look and they can tell, you know, this is you know, clearly birdshot and get certain HLA typing, et cetera. So I think they're really very linked. And, and I, I felt like I had to remain in the world of medicine. I think in retina in general, we have to do that. We're dealing with systemic diseases. We have to talk with diabetics about their control. Someone comes in with a vein occlusion and the internist tells them, oh, your blood pressure is fine. It's 140 over 85. We have to say, you know what? The criteria have changed recently and that's actually high, especially if you've had an event. So retina is also tied to real medicine and I like it. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I hate to say this because we have, I'm sure some general ophthalmology colleagues listening, but there are some aspects of recent general ophthalmology that departs from medicine, it's a, it serves a great purpose, but they're not doing a lot of real medicine. And uh, we still do, particularly in uveitis. Maybe this is already answered in the same way, but so then what, you developed a career in academia right from the beginning. I think you went straight into UCSD um, after your fellowships. Right. Is that correct? And uh, was Stuart Brown the chairman at that yeah, time? Yeah, so Stuart, Stuart, Stuart Brown was the chairman. And I remember Stuart was trying to decide who to add to the faculty. And, and Steve Ryan at the time was the most powerful ophthalmologist in America. And he really thought this would be a great position for me. There was a tenure track position open. I was interested in starting a laboratory, writing NIH grants and all that. And uh, it took him a few calls to Stuart Brown, who he could never make up his mind very well, Stuart. And then it was finally decided. So I ended up here and I've been here my whole career. And I have to say that if you're interested in doing academics, not just, you know, teaching cataract surgery and things, but really making a difference, you really want to be at a great university because in a first rate place, anyone you work with is likely to be first rate. And if you're at a very small place that doesn't have very strong science departments, you're not as likely to be successful because you may not be dealing with the most innovative people uh, or technologies. So UCSD has been, been great. And I was astonished 
that anyone who I went to meet with, even though these people were like, you know, decades ahead of me in their career, very well-known people, oh, we'd love to collaborate, tell us what you're interested in. You know, here, the psychiatry department was very interested in the brain and HIV, and they had huge amounts of money to study this. And immediately, ah, the retina is the window to the brain. You know, they were very fascinated. So it was great to set up these collaborations and that evolved into working with imaging. And we have an excellent school of engineering and, and the bioengineering group and electrical in particular. Uh, actually, I was just appointed as an affiliated professor of electrical engineering. I'm probably the only one who still can't do calculus. <laughs> I don't want to tell them that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but wherever you go, you, you run into really good people and, and they help you. And they also tell you, you know, what you want to do is silly. It's not going to work. So a great university is a wonderful thing. You know, when I drive by um, heading down to San Diego uh, on the freeway there, I can't believe how big all those buildings are now off of uh, the, the interstate that, you know, used to be where I lived when I was a fellow. And there were just yeah. small buildings there off the freeway, Thornton Hospital. And now it's this massive like city of buildings they're really growing there and it seems to be happening still and rapidly it's, it's, it's pretty massive and, and there's big big growth in engineering because you know what is engineering it's the practical application of science and in a lot of places the the engineers really want to collaborate with people like us because we know what the clinical issue is some of us have a little more background in the laboratory they know how to fix the scientific problem potentially, but they really don't know what's relevant, what isn't relevant, and, and what's practical. UCSD itself is a draw, but give us the backstory. Is the surfing really what made you uh, leave the Northeast and want to stay out West? Uh, I'm an so, old New Yorker too. So, uh, I love to surf. so I, I like windsurfing. Now I switched. My friends from windsurfing are annoyed with me because I've gone to the dark side and the dark side is kite surfing. Okay. Of course, kite surfing, you can put it all in your trunk except for the surfboard. And now I foil. So you, you get up, it gets up out of the water and you're on the hydrofoil with the kite and you're almost flying. So San Diego really has adequate wind for kite surfing and things almost year round. So it, it's, it's just been fantastic. And you go for a couple hours, you have your fix, you know, it's better than most drugs that I'm aware of. I can tell you that. And uh, you, you feel good. I've taught all my kids how to do this. I remember my son, you know, kite surfing can be very dangerous. And my son, the attorney, he says, okay, dad, he's in Maui. It's 40 mile an hour wind. And he says, all right, dad, hook me up, I'm ready to go. And I said, Sam, do you remember the safety? No. <laughs> what, what if the kite starts spinning? Oh, I forgot, I forgot. So you've got to get the teenage boy is fearless. So I may have saved his life by going through the safety checks a few times. You're going to have to uh, put it into the fellowship. Sadly, I, I didn't learn that from you, but I would have liked to. I never did do it's, it. It's never, it's never too late. I can give you a recommendation for a teacher if you want. Thanks, man. Thanks. So listen, you mentioned the psychiatry department and the retina window to the world or to the health. Um, you were prolific in, in my time. This was ongoing uh, with HIV and AIDS and, and specifically CMB retinitis. Maybe 
maybe no one in the world has published more on clinical and scientific uh, observations and treatments in CMV retinitis. What was that like? You were part of a really pioneering time that this was really the height of it, the beginning, and then into the height of it. What was that like? And what drew you to that? Was it just your skill set or did you see the need? And, and Well, so I, actually what drew me to it was that in the beginning, nobody had any idea what was going on. And, and it was called necrotizing retinitis and gay men. There were all these, you know, no one really knew what was going on. And that was happening during my training. So I think I gravitated towards a new problem. And it's not that common. There's a totally new disease and new set of challenges, you know, in medicine. A lot of what we do, AMD is still around, vascular occlusions, you know, all that many new diseases. But then as HIV got under control, I really still like the idea of delivering drugs directly into the eye. And as we all know, as HIV went away and, and intraocular therapies were, were used for that extensively, this started happening with uh, macular degeneration and then with diabetes. And I was very involved. I had an NIH grant for many years looking at different ways to deliver drugs. And actually I started a company uh, called Spinnaker Biosciences, which delivers drugs, including anti-VEGF drugs, by placing it in nanoporous silicon particles, which are then ground up into a micron-sized particle. And we inject these in the eye, but you can customize the size of the pore and the charge in the pore and all these things to many different types of drugs. So that kind of grew out of my work with drug delivery. And I met a fellow named Mike Saylor, who is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry, distinguished professor. And the guy is just incredibly innovative. So he is one of the world's authorities on nanoporous silicon. And that substance has other applications which I'll talk about in a minute, but we began a collaboration, wrote NIH grants, and we're looking initially at Avastin and better drugs to be injected in these particles and then elute from the particles in the eye. And we started a company, uh, the work was patented at UCSD. Uh, so it's a spinoff of UCSD. The university owns a very small percentage of the company, but has no say in management. And I was told by the CEO, you do not want the university to have a say in management because you'll never get investors. But the, the university wants to make sure the inventions get to the public. And we actually are organizing an FDA submission now to start treating wet AMD with single injections that we hope will last five to six months. Don't know until we try it. Uh, but it's a very long-acting drug delivery system, and the nanoporous silicon actually dissolves and hydrolyzes in the vitreous and disappears. So that was all a result of the need for a long-acting therapy initially for CMV retinitis, but now we use local therapies in many diseases. You know, as you know, there are some companies looking at co systemic complement inhibitors, Others took the role, well, let's do it locally. You know, we'll see what happens. Uh, but the systemic complement inhibitors, they're really used for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria and other diseases. 
and you have to be careful about systemic side effects. So I got involved in drug delivery and had, had decades of NIH support for that. And that resulted in, in Spinnaker Biosciences. There are a number of you know, companies and university spinoffs that are you know, trying different drug delivery. This is one of the hottest topics in the posterior segment of the eye. I knew, Absolutely. I knew you'd have a lot to say, and I know you know a lot. And I, I want to agree with you and credit these early uh, pioneering kind of work with uh, injections into the vitreous. You, among a very few others who figured out one way or another that you could recurrently inject into the vitreous these drugs and have this great effect with minimal or no systemic side effects. Do you think, as you were sort of implying, that, um, or maybe it wouldn't have come this far had we not had a period in the 1990s and around then with the CMV crisis and all the different... Yeah, I think you're right for us. That, that, it's a great insight. That made intravitreal injections acceptable. And I remember the internists thinking we were out of our minds. We're going to stick a needle in this AIDS patient's eye every month or two? And are you out of your mind? And there were executives in drug companies who thought this was insane, but it, it became the standard of care and questions that you couldn't answer in the lab, like how many injections can an eye handle? Two, 10, 15? How many gancyclovir implants can you put in until you run out of room? All those questions got answered with clinical experience. So now I'm sure you see, I see patients They've had 10 years of injections. People may have had 50 injections in each eye, and it's astonishingly well tolerated, which is why people worry a little bit about devices and implants, because the injections you know, just work incredibly well. I think we're all aware that we're overdosing the patient in the sense we're putting in much too much drug initially, but you've got an exponential curve and the goal is to make it last as long as possible. But it would be great to have just the right dose in there and having it last for many months. And that's what drug delivery is about. And, you know, every year at Arvo, there's a new way to do it, right? So well, the trick is to pick the winner. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I had for you, and you've sort of answered it with the work at Spinnaker that you just described, but are we on the right track? So, you know, there's polymers, as you described, there's now surgical options, which some of us aren't thinking necessarily is, is the best option, as you just implied. I, I don't believe that's the answer. There's longer acting drugs, there's conjugates. Are we on the right track? Is this, is the polymer technique in solid or semi-solid? Is that the best answer in your opinion? Oh, so, you know, polymers have to degrade. And that means something called the chemical reaction. And there may be problems. Problems can include changes in the pH. Problems can include uh, release of other substances. There can be impurities in polymers. Uh, sometimes the polymer lasts longer than the drug. So with Ozodex, for example, you may see, and, and it's a great, it's a very safe delivery system, but you may see the clinical effect wearing off, even though the little worm is still there. So it's interesting. We don't have a way to know when it's time for the next injection, except waiting for the disease to come back. And when you think about it, you're probably better off preventing the disease from coming back. 
one of the interesting properties of the, this nanoporous silicon is that you can program the particles to change color as the drug is released uh, because nanoporous silicon has what's called structural color. It's like a beetle shell. If you look at a beetle or, or if your kids are playing with a beetle, it has this iridescent color. It's reddish and green and orange and very pretty. But if you grind up the beetle shell, it has no color. So that, because it's not pigment color, it's structural color. So it's the overlapping chitin layers and how they reflect the light that, are, that results in color. So the nanoporous silicon is the same thing. When the particles are filled, the index of refraction changes very slightly and this structural color changes. Another interesting application of this nanoporous silicon, which is happening, not by me, is using it as anti-counterfeiting. So you can encode digital barcodes into these multi-layered repeating structures, and they can be read with a little handheld laser. And there's a company in, in Hawaii, and no, I haven't visited them to serve <laughs> yet, called TrueTags. And they're working, and this is Mike Sale of my collaborator's invention. They're working on incorporating this into medications, into the actual pill, because the, the nanopore silicon is not toxic. And so that the pharmacist can scan the pill and get the barcode and determine if the drug is real or counterfeit. You know, in our country, counterfeit drug is not that big of a deal. But if you talk, I train fellows from all over. And in Asia, if you ask a patient's blood pressure is not responding, what do you do? The first thing they think of is counterfeit drug. Hmm. It's like in the differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And this has been a problem with HIV AIDS because in Thailand, people were taking drugs that didn't work. So anti-counterfeiting may be a technology we'll all be interested in to assure ourselves that we have the, the right product. Interesting. That's definitely news to me. Um, the Spinnaker Bioscience, as you mentioned, it was a spin out from UCSD, obviously, under your watch. Uh, what's its current state corporate wise? I'll give you an opportunity because there are people listening who may have interest. And what is your role now? Are you an advisor? Uh, I'm kind of an advisor. You know, UCSD, they want you to start the company, but they don't want you to help manage. It. You shouldn't have a conflict of interest, yet you should make it successful. <laughs> so I'm like, which which way do you want it? You know, <laughs> you want the curveball spinning to the left or the right? But but I have to say that they're they're well intentioned and they have to deal with state rules and regulations and all sorts of stuff. We're we're a state agency, so the company's being managed by a CEO. You know, there's several scientists. The work is not no longer being done at UCSD. But innovations that get made at UCSD get added to the patent portfolio, and UCSD gets a piece of that. So actually, one of the new innovations, which has not, is not close to being commercialized yet, is instead of having microparticles with nanopores, to have nanoparticles, these are then coated in lipid, and in the lipid membrane are targeting peptides. So we started working with this and you basically take a nanoparticle that has, is targeted to different types of cells 
it fuses with the cell membrane because of the lipid coat and then dumps the nanoparticle into the cytoplasm. And with this, you can have RNA therapeutics. So small interfering RNA and related things. So that is kind of the next step in that that really shuts off the pathology before it starts. Instead of having VEGF secreted and mopping it up, this would stop it from being made. And this can be applied to proliferation, you know, scarring and diabetes, PVR, et cetera. So that's kind of our next area of interest. And as you know, if you start a company, you need to have another product line. So you want to stay a couple of steps ahead. But the company is focused on this clinical trial, which should be starting this calendar year. And that's going to be in wet AMD, trying to see if this indeed will last for five or six months with a single injection. That's amazing, that's great, keep us posted. I, I figured and should have known you'd have full knowledge of what's the latest and the hottest and I, I knew you would be, especially with drug delivery. There's another program I know you're involved with or at least what were, I, I wanna hear from you about it. It's called Nanovision Biosciences. Is that related? That looks like an retina program. Is that, yeah, that that's is that on correct. So nanovision was uh, developed from photonic nanowires that were developed and characterized at UCSD in the electrical engineering and bioengineering department. And I approached the engineers and I said, you know, if you can actually get near single photon sensitivity with silicon nanowires to produce an electrical signal and deliver that to degenerating retina, we could replace the photoreceptor layer of the retina. And for us, as you know very well, most of the diseases we're dealing with, the inner retina is okay. Mm -hmm. Ganglion cells, some of the middle layers, it's AMD, for example, is an outer retinal disease. And in a sense, it should be much easier to replace that than to replace the full thickness retina. As you know, there are companies that do have epiretinal prostheses they haven't gone very far for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that if you put something on the surface of the retina, you're really stimulating the nerve fiber layer and the ganglion cells, and they, are, they think they're picking up signals from different places. So you really can't get good spatial resolution. On the other hand, an epiretinal prosthesis, you just slap on the retina, thinking about it crudely. You don't have to go under the retina to, to insert it. But there are groups looking at both approaches. And of course, you have biological approaches as well. You know, gene therapy approaches, uh, putting in dyes that'll, that, that will be photosensitive. The big problem in all of this is that the retina is an enormous light magnifier. And if you reach back to medical school and look at the cascade, the chemical cascade of phototransduction, there's an enormous amount of amplification that gets done. It's really chemical amplification. And that is still very difficult to achieve without generating heat. So good cameras can do this very well, but the sensor gets warm. So doing this without generating heat is, is the trick. So NanoVision has, has got formed, has raised money, is looking at this. But then I should say that there's also defense uh, aspects of NanoVision that I can't discuss unless <laughs> we fly to Ukraine and have a secret meeting. But 
you know, it, the, the nanowires can detect infrared light and they can do it without cooling. So that means that a soldier in the field can detect an incoming missile 25 miles away without having these, you know, liquid nitrogen cooled infrared sensors. So that's, a, that's not my area of expertise, but it kind of fell out of this. So Nanovision is pursuing that as well. You know, the processing that takes place in the retina is so complex and so vast. I w- I'd be interested in this, in this context, in your opinion, on, you know, the optogenetics conceptualization, which is, you know, transforming other cells into photoreceptors, be they bipolar or ganglion cells, seems to bypass so much processing. This seems well, that's to be- a big, that's exactly right. To bypass the processing, it, you, you need the processing. And the retina is not just a one-to-one conduit to the brain. There's an enormous amount of processing. And actually, if you get into high-end cameras or even your phone camera, there's a lot that goes on between when the light hits the sensor and it gives the signal off. You have to suppress the noise. You have to amplify the, the signal, make sure there's a dark surround, increase contrast, et cetera. So I think the optogenetics, you know, it's the new flavor du jour, Right. And uh, you, your wife, does she speak French? I know she sings in Italian. She, she sings in Italian and in German, but she doesn't speak. No French, okay. She can do it phonetically. <laughs> okay. You have a good memory. Uh, she does sing in French, too. Um, but she doesn't know what she's singing. Not at all. It's completely phonetic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the optogenics is interesting. It's not that hard to do, it turns out. But it hasn't really gone anywhere yet. And I think what we've been discussing are the reasons for that. But yeah, you just you just never know what's going to happen. And anybody who thinks they can look at an invention and say for sure this will never work or it's definitely going to work, yeah, it's just it's just not true. So this is what innovation is about. And you know, if you go back during your career, an interesting thing is to look at all the innovations that didn't happen. And you go to a meeting and someone's got a this or a that. There was a balloon that was going to deliver drugs in the eye for a couple of years and all sorts of things. Yeah. And, and when they disappear from the radar, either it means they're starting clinical trials and they have to be quiet about it, or it just didn't work. And that, that's not a negative to the inventor. You know, a lot of stuff isn't going to work. No, and some things turn out not to pan out commercially, even if they make it to full distance. And, and that's very, very sad. The true wherewithal, I guess, to be a commercial success. You know, look, Second Sight did amazing engineering work to develop the implant. Mark of Mind's done great work there, but it, it didn't pan out um, commercially. It just no. wasn't that useful in the marketplace. I guess. And you know what? It was state of the art when he did it. Yeah. But one of the problems in business is that, you know, you, you've got to stick with what's patented. So if Mark, let's say, were to try to do something else, he might be infringing on someone else's patent. So the company's going to tell him to stick with his the electronics that he developed. But really, that's the world of micro already. And we're in the nano world. And it's just it's just different. You know, it's like the incandescent light bulb compared to LED. But, but what Mark taught us is that you can implant electronics in the eye, you can get some stimulus 
of the retina to the brain. And that's, that's a breakthrough. Whether it gives great vision or not is a different issue, but it, it's very, very innovative. And he stuck with it, raised a lot of money, actually. And uh, the fact that it didn't work, I think the technology was just not modern enough. Probably it. Agree. Uh, some discoveries are just great in, on their own uh, two legs. Switching gears briefly here before we run out of time, you're, you, we've talked a lot about the technologies and all the stuff you're doing in the labs. You've been an educator for decades. I'm one of the <laughs> outcomes of that education, and I appreciate it, and I thought it was a great program. What do you, you think we're, on, we're doing a good job today, and um, is it different, or is it the same as it had ever been in the last 30 years training residency? So, you know, I, I train residents, but as you know, I spend much more time with fellows because the fellows can contribute more and they're more interested in retina, they're retina fellows. I was actually thinking back, uh, you know, I, a lot of the training, is, it's kind of like your professional children, right? So you got to look at what, what do people do with the training? So, you know, Fernando Arevalo actually came from Venezuela, but he's now at Hopkins teaching and doing innovative things. Uh, I trained Fernando and I'm proud of that. He got this whole Latin eye disease consortium going. Uh, he publishes a lot. Alay Banker is probably one of the most well-known retina people in India. And actually he pursued Cydophavir for infectious retinitis because nothing else was available. Arthur Mueller did the work with me on imaging of the microvessels in melanoma. I did a clinical trial in Germany. He's a chairman there. Uh, I have people in Tanta, Mohammed El Brady, uh, Dr. Koh in Seoul. Uh, Igor Kozak ended up being the director of Moorfields in Dubai, and he's doing great work there. Jay Shablani went back to India, but he's so good they recruited him to Pittsburgh. And one of my recent graduates, Matthew Bakum, who did the clinical fellowship here, is in charge of ocular oncology at Yale. So a lot of the people you train make their own contributions. And yet when we have our conferences every Tuesday morning, you're welcome to join, by the way. It became virtual, you know, <laughs> seven to eight, tune us in. A lot of former fellows come in and they show us their cases and case series, and we all learn from each other. I have three fellows now at Genentech. I don't know why Genentech likes my graduates. <laughs> so Giulio Bartoselli has been there for about eight or 10 years, Manuel Amador and the newest, Molina Cavaccini, and they're all working in the retina group in Genentech. Uh, I would also say that I've learned from a lot of people uh, so Dirk Bartsch, who you probably remember, still does optics, critical guy for me. I learn a lot from him. Dr. Ling Wen Chang is doing all the animal model work. Uh, my good friend Stan Azen taught me uh, statistics. He was the director of statistics at, at USC. Uh, and unfortunately, he's now quite ill. And then Alfredo Sudun, who I think you know, uh, was... A lot of interesting stories about him and, and me and Steve Ryan, but he's the guy I always go to for optic nerve disease when there's something really obscure. So the people you train, the people you work with, it's great to see you know, what they do. I think the training really hasn't changed that much. I think the first thing I, I want is for people to know that the fellowship is kind of your last time to really be interested in learning and you don't get any heat. 
if the thing blows up, it's going to be my fault, <laughs> right? You can do some of the surgery, but I have to deal with the problems. So it's your time to learn from every patient. Uh, one of the new things we're doing is a lot of video work now. I don't know if, if you use it, but Alcon's uh, 3D visualization yeah. system. Yeah. So now when you operate, I, I only use the heads-up display. I don't operate through the scope anymore. Everybody sees every mistake. Yeah. So you got to be ready <laughs> for that. Yeah. But it's a, it's a fantastic teaching experience because everybody knows. So now you're teaching the nurses and the scrub technicians. They now know why you like that particular instrument because they see what, what you can do with it. And it's, so that's another aspect of, of teaching, actually. And when they put the 3D glasses on, their mouths just drop because they, they've been assisting you all this time, and now they see what you do. So I have to hand it to Alcon. They've really made, you know, ingenuity. It works. And uh, in a teaching institution, it's, it's great. You mentioned a few guys I'll give a shout out to. I was there at the same time when Fernando Arevalo and L.A. Banker were fellows. We're still good friends. We talk frequently. That's great. We've, we've collaborated. And Arthur was there at that time, too. Yes. For uh -huh. a short while. And, of course, Dirk Uwe. So these are, yeah, these are people that have remained close over the years. You might not know this, but we've stayed in touch uh, after all these years. And we see each other at meetings and we have a good time and collaborate. It's, it's wonderful, actually. Yeah. No, it's... It's great. The other thing I need to acknowledge is my wife who puts up with me. So the, the, my wife, Laura Freeman, is actually Laura Gomez Freeman. She's actually a cornea specialist. But as Dr. Afshari, my cornea colleague here, tells me, I'm also cornea trained. You are? I am because I, I did the Proctor Fellowship. Oh, that's right. So it was uveitis and cornea. So okay. the joke is they send the retina guy, a patient with some Desmase folds and bad vision after cataract surgery. They say, figure out what's wrong with the retina. There's nothing wrong with the retina. <laughs> well, this guy, it's got to be the retina. I say, no, you know, there's a slow level corneal edema. I see some Desmase folds and it's your fault, not my fault, so to speak. So the joke <laughs> is you got to listen to Freeman because he knows how to look at the cornea. But my wife actually slid into this space of dry eye. So she's now the director of the dry eye service at UCSD. And let me tell you, those patients are complicated. You don't want those patients. <laughs> they have multiple systemic diseases. They have medicamentos. They have glaucoma. There are nine drops. They're not making any tears. They're on Zydrin, Restasis, and they're bankrupt. <laughs> so I, I, when I listen to her stories, I'm very happy I'm in retina. Listen, uh, we have just a few seconds left. You've done about everything one can do in an ophthalmology career. Uh, what's next? What remains for you to do? What are you enjoying most? What do you want to do over the next number of years, if you don't mind me asking? Well, you know, I'd like to see some products come out of the companies I started. I think that's going to happen. And I'd like to see the next generation of products. One of the great things about being in the environment that I'm in is that I can help pick and choose something that's innovative. And I think that's very exciting. But I have to tell you that being out on the water is critical for creativity. <laughs> You know, when you're going down an eight-foot wave and you got to worry about the kite and the board, all the other problems disappear. And it's very refreshing when you're done. 
I I know you feel that. So way. so so pick pick a fun hobby that lets you escape a little bit. That would be my advice. Awesome, uh, Bill Freeman, innovator, uh, one of my great mentors and teachers, and uh, great guy. Thanks for taking the time to do the podcast with us. I'm sure people enjoy hearing some of these. My podcasts. pleasure. Take be well for us, and have your wife keep singing. Okay, <laughs> will do. I, I may send my youngest daughter to her for training. Austin, we'd love to see her. <laughs> All right. Take care. See you later. Thanks for coming on, Bill. My pleasure. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS podcast. Be sure to listen in next week as we discuss the latest innovations in ophthalmology with experts in science, medicine, and industry. Subscribe to our iTunes channel so you don't miss a thing. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at ois.net.